You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. So for you guys who uh, may not know me, uh, I am Kenny. I am the student pastor here at Crosspoint Community Church. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. It is uh, Student Sunday. That's why we have uh, students greeting. We have students kind of performing uh, up here on stage and, and all of the, the, the duties. I, I just want to take a second to thank each of them for waking up early because that's something that students really don't like to do. But... Um, so a few years ago, uh, instead of hanging around LaGrange for the 4th of July, uh, my family and I decided we were going to get out of town for, uh, for a change, right? So the five of us, uh, me, me and my wife, our two kids, and then Marley, my sister-in-law, we rented a house on Medina Lake and took off for the weekend. July 4th was on a weekend that year. As it turned out, the um, place wasn't quite as nice uh, as the picture said suggested it might be. Uh, the weather wasn't super cooperative that particular weekend. It was fine. It was no big deal. Uh, it was nice to get away for a few days. We still had some fun. Plus, we brought games to play, right? Because we like a good family game night. Um, it's not unusual. Uh, it's always fun to play, especially when all five of us are together, which uh, with a daughter in college happens very rarely these days. Um, but I don't know, uh, if you guys have a family game night, I don't know what it looks like for you. You know, it's a time to, to sit around and laugh. You know, we really enjoy each other's company. Everyone gets along. Um, we're bonding, you know. It's just, it, it, it's so much fun. Actually, not, uh, none of that's true in our house. Uh, no, it's, uh, it, it gets ugly sometimes. Um, you might, uh, bloodbath might be a good descriptor of how it works. My family would <clears throat> probably blame it on me, but that's, that, that, that's a different story. But see, I think is games like, uh, Monopoly and Risk, these long form games, it's not really our style, right? They just take too long. It's not that they're, they're not fun. They just take too long. It's the, it's the fast paced games. The one you can get in and out of very quickly, round for round. That's what we like, right? Games like Minute to Win It, uh, even though I feel like an absolute fool when I'm doing those little whatever they are things, that's, that's the point, right? Uno is another good one. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Uno is another good one that's a lot of fun to play. It's kind of our, uh, one of our go-to. Spicy Uno, somebody introduced me to that a few years ago. Uh, once you get the hang of that, that one's actually a lot of fun. But in the case of this particular trip, we took a game called Boggle. Anyone familiar with this game? So if you're not familiar with it, let me, let me kind of give you an idea of how this works, right? So you have this little plastic uh, box thingy looking thing, right? It's got nine dice in it, okay? Each dice has various letters on it, and then you have the lid. You have a 60-second timer. Everybody gets a pencil and a list, and then you shake this thing up, right? Make sure they're good and, uh, good and, uh, and mixed up, and you make sure every dice is in the little square that it's supposed to be in. You start the timer, you pull the lid off, you start writing down words. Okay, you, you, you want to write down as many words as you can make out of the letters that are uh, that are showing. So uh, at the end of 60 seconds, you move to the scoring phase. You put your pencils down. Everybody starts to compare lists. 
And if two or more people have the same word, you cross that off. You don't get a point for it, right? And so then and the, uh, uh, you get a point for every word that you get. If at the end of however many rounds you'll determine you want to play, whoever has the most points wins. Very simple. Uh, also very fun, theoretically. The idea, of course, is to uh, identify and write down actual words from the English language. Okay, very quickly in our game, it became obvious that the, the strategy was going to be, I'm going to write down as many three and four letter combinations of letters that might loosely resemble a word, and then I'm just going to try and make a case for it in the scoring phase. And here's the thing. Every, I mean, nobody wants to get into the minutia of the rules, right? We want to hurry up and get the game going. Let's, let's have fun. Let's score this thing. Let's count it. Uh, Nobody wants to spend three hours looking at dictionary.com to determine if this random sequence of letters that you just wrote down is gibberish or if it's an actual word. And I'm talking about obvious stuff, right? Sing is spelled with an I. Yes, I know that Y can act as a vowel, but I don't need a Ph.D. in English to tell you it doesn't happen that often, right? S-Y-N-G is not a word. You don't have to look it up. I already looked it up. See, we each bring our own interpretation of the rules to the table. Okay? And it's whatever interpretation is going to benefit us the most. Then everybody at the table has to determine how they want to or if they should respond based on the set of rules that we have already gone over. So in the case of uh, this game, it's a decision that has to be made very quickly. Right? Everyone wants to hurry up. We want to get to the next round. Let's keep having fun. So then do I stand firm, right, in what I know is right, or do I conform for the sake of conforming just to make everyone happy, right? Should we be applying the strict literal meaning of these rules, or is there maybe room for interpretation? You know, can I bend this just a little bit here? What I just described is youth ministry in a nutshell. Here's the rub. In our game, everyone is working with the same set of rules, right? So it begs the question, who's in control? Who's controlling this game, right? You start talking about the game of life, though. Not only do the same questions come up, but sometimes it seems like not everyone's working from the same rule book. Or if they are, there's a different interpretation, right? Take, for example, take for example the concept of sin. Okay, this is going to be a good one. The Bible describes sin in several different ways, okay? The Apostle John has this to say in 1 John. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Okay, he's referring, of course, to the law of God or the law of Moses. It's clearly defined in the Old Testament. And it was actually Joshua's, uh, Moses' son Joshua that uh, uses stronger language in his book, where he, he describes sinners as someone who rebels against God, right? So then there's this whole weird thing about with laws, sometimes you don't actually know you're breaking a law, right? And maybe that's the inference that Moses is, is, is taking in his laws. Uh, but then Joshua is saying, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, if you're breaking a law, you're rebelling against God, whether you knew it or not. Um, it's sin. Later in his church to, uh, in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul describes sin this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, right? Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin, right? So what Paul is saying is that sin is inherent. It's an inherent condition, right? 
uh, no one can escape sin because we are all inherently preconceived to a sinful nature. That's the Christian perspective, right? Interesting to note, there is a cross-section of believers that would disagree with my previous statement, right? It's probably a different sermon, but it goes back to the interpretation thing. The Bible is clear, however, that regardless of sin's definition, the end result is the same. Paul in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Society, on the other hand, interprets sin very differently, right? Where Christians understand sin to be, uh, they they define sin broadly as a transgression against God. The uh, postmodernist, inclusionist society uh, tends to narrow the scope of sin through, uh, through a lens of infractions against one another, okay? So then when you consider the influence that that pop culture has on society, uh, as well as the ability to continuously exert that influence uh, through technology and social media, it becomes obvious that uh, the problem of sin in the world is uh, not only getting worse, but society insists on uh, seemingly uh, rounding the edges to the point that sin is... Simply a matter of perspective. Well, how do we respond to that? Ironically, it was the Apostle Peter who famously had trouble controlling his own emotions that offers probably the best instruction on this. Instead, he writes, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Way. And so this is the idea that Paul is building on in this section of Colossians. Okay, He isn't urging us to deny the harsh realities of life, but he's simply reminding us of where the focus should be. Right? How does my life change as a result of who Christ is? And when our eyes are on Christ, we see the matters of this life from a different perspective. We see there is hope. Even when everything seems dark, And hopeless. He's saying the struggles of life, they don't have this terrifying power like they once did. But here's the thing, and this is this is something that that Paul is inferring in in Colossians, is you have to decide who has the position of authority in your life. Who is in control, right? Am I willing to turn my life over to Jesus regardless of the outcome? Sadly, I think that that many of us, uh, including myself at one point, approached Jesus kind of like we would uh, maybe a teacher uh, or a counselor, maybe a coach. You know, we look at Jesus as someone who can advise, uh, someone who can give guidance, maybe some spiritual coaching here and there. Um, But if we hear something that we don't like, now good. You know, if I don't like these verses that I'm reading, I'll just keep reading until I find some that I do like. You know, we want to hear from Jesus. We want to hear from, hear what he says. But if the results that I'm seeking don't come fast enough, then maybe we figure, well, I'll just do it myself. Right? I'm in control. I know what's best. I'm the boss of me. And so in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul spends a lot of energy talking about Jesus' lordship. Right? Who's calling the shots? He calls Jesus the visible image of of the invisible God, 
right? He says that through God, through him, God created everything, heaven and earth. He calls Jesus the head of the church. He says that Jesus is first in everything. He says that Jesus provides wisdom and knowledge. And that through the blood of Christ, only through the blood of Christ, God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. What he's saying is Jesus is a king, building a kingdom. And so then what he's going to lay out in Colossians 3, the one that uh, Camden read a second ago, is that uh, how that kingdom works. Okay? And the question that Paul asks is this. Is Jesus the master of everything in your life? Right. Or do you simply see him as a mentor? Is he calling the shots regardless of the outcome? Or is he just making suggestions in your mind that, I don't know, I may or may not follow. Right. Maybe I'll do that. I won't do that. I really like this one. I really, I really don't like that one. That one seems unreasonable because Paul gave us three lists, right? Two vice lists, uh, things that we're, we're probably not supposed to do. And then, uh, one virtue list, things that we probably need to start doing, right? And it's not uncommon to start sifting when you start reading that. But that brings me back to my original question about Jesus' authority. Okay. Why do we still approach a, a relationship with him, with Jesus as more mentor and less master? Well, if we're being honest, I think, and this, is, this was true in my life, I think it's because we sometimes have a hard time reconciling the truth of Jesus' claims that he was the Son of God, right? Think about it for a second. Jesus was God. He was the Son of God, uh, fully man, uh, fully God, okay? But we know that. What was it that separated him from everyone else? Okay, maybe you would say he was a gifted speaker, and he was, without a doubt. There are other examples in the Bible of gifted speakers. There's there's examples throughout history, okay? In the Bible alone, we have Moses, we have Peter, we have Luke, Isaiah was a great speaker, just to name a few. Currently, we have people like uh, Joby Martin, right? Ben Stewart, Craig Rochelle, Chris Little, Jonathan Hernandez. All great speakers. Maybe you would point to his miracles. Jesus performed a lot of miracles during his ministry. But so did the apostles. Not on their own, obviously. I get that. It's God's power working through them. Right? Different different sermon. But uh, Scripture mentions Paul and Peter both um, uh, performing miracles among other apostles. So then maybe you would say that uh, what separates Jesus is that he was a powerful leader of men. Yes, he was. Absolutely, but so was David, okay? His son Solomon, also powerful leader, so was Paul. You could point to the fact that Jesus never sinned. Yes, that is correct. You've got me there. That one's true. But this one, this is where it goes back to the whole interpretation thing, okay? Even though by all accounts Jesus lived a life without sin, it was that claim, his claims to be God... That the Jewish leaders at the time interpreted as blasphemy, in their minds, the very worst sin of all, right? It was ultimately, uh, it would ultimately be the, re- the reason that they used to arrest him. So yes, Jesus did live a life without sin. He did not sin, 
Okay? But that's not how the Jewish leaders see it. They interpreted it differently. Now, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here. Okay? So let me make one thing abundantly clear. I am not making the case that Jesus was not special. If what you're hearing me say up here right now is that, oh, well, he's just saying that that Jesus was no big deal. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay? Let me be clear. I am not trying to say that Jesus was anything, anything other than what he claimed to be, which was the Son of God. What I am saying is this. In my opinion, there is one event that separates Jesus from everyone else and completes the circle of his greatness. Okay? He was all of those things that I mentioned earlier. He was. But in my opinion, it is his resurrection that is the key element in reconciling his claims to be God's son. Because not only did Jesus predict his own death and his own resurrection, he did it, right? He called his shot and nailed it. The resurrection is the hinge on which our entire belief swings. It validates Jesus' example And his teachings in a way that no other leader could ever hope to do. The resurrection, guys, is the event that solidifies the foundations of our faith. And it is the one event that the secular world points to as so unbelievable and so unprovable that it couldn't possibly be true. So can we prove it? It's interesting. This uh, question came up to the students uh, a few Wednesdays ago, right? And at the time, I said to them exactly what I'm about to say to you. The short answer is yes, okay? But I was not able that night to get into the details. Luckily, uh, we're going to do that today. So um, the thing is, though, when you talk about evidence of the resurrection, not everyone was carrying around their own personal recording device, okay? Uh, It's not like today where everything gets uh, snapped or or insta-tweet-faced, or whatever it is that they do. But what you have to do is you have to logically examine the evidence that we have. Okay, It's largely eyewitness testimony, but you have to examine that to come to a logical conclusion. Okay, Now, there's, there, there are many lines of evidence for the resurrection that, uh, that make a compelling case. But uh, today, I am only going to concentrate on three. These are the three that, in my opinion, to me, are the most significant. Um, I'm going to hit two very quickly, and then one's going to take a little bit longer. Before I start, though, let me say this. Uh, I am only hitting the wave tops. Okay? Each of these uh, lines of evidence is rich enough that they, they would probably require not only their own sermon, but sermon series to flesh out. Right? So if I'm going through these and you start thinking to yourself... Man, he is leaving out a lot of information. Yes, I am. But the good news is we meet every week. We'll get to it at some point. So when we talk evidence, the first line of evidence that I find compelling is the prominence of women in the resurrection story. Why is this significant? Because in all the major uh, resurrection narratives, women are credited as the first and primary witnesses. They were first to the tomb. They were the first uh, to have an experience with the risen Christ. Right. The secular world says, well, the apostles invented this whole story. It's all a scam. It's all a lie. Right. Well, if that were the case, it would be a really odd inclusion to have uh, women as the primary witnesses. Right. To take a primary role in the story, considering in ancient Jewish and Roman cultures, women were shunned. 
Okay, their uh, their testimony was regarded as weak and in, and dismissible. And so, in first century Judea, it is highly unlikely that. Uh, the disciples, the, the males, would lean on the testimony of women as accurate. Okay? Of all of the male disciples who claimed to see uh, the resurrected Jesus, if they were all lying uh, and, and the resurrection was just a scam, why did they pick? There's no reason to pick what was at the time perceived uh, or the most ill-perceived uh, distrusted witnesses that they can find. It doesn't make sense. Right. The second line of evidence revolves around uh, the Apostle Paul and Jesus' brother James. Okay. So Paul, of his own admission, he was a Pharisee, started life as a Pharisee by, by his own admission. Uh, he was a violent persecutor of the church. Uh, by his own admission, he murdered um, men, women, and children who were Christians. Okay. But after what he described as an encounter with the resurrected Christ, Paul underwent an immediate and drastic change almost overnight from oppressor of the church to one of its most prolific and uh, selfless defenders. Okay? Paul would ultimately um, be executed for his beliefs, but not before he suffered persecution, beatings, was thrown in prison, all for his commitment to Christ. Overnight. Uh James, Jesus' brother, uh, he was more skeptical than hostile. Uh, if you have a sibling, think about it for a second. Your older sibling walks in and says, hey, good news, I'm the son of God. Mm. We might want to have a longer conversation about this, right? It's probably what my sisters would say about me anyway. But anyway, um, but it was a post-resurrection encounter with Christ uh, that turned um, James into the steadfast believer. He was actually one of the early uh, leaders of the church of, of Jerusalem. And like Paul, uh, he willingly suffered and died for, his, uh, for the sincerity of his belief. But the, but the third line of evidence, and this one is the most significant to me, uh, and, I, and maybe it will be to you too, uh, revolves around 11 of the original 12 apostles. Okay, so we're talking about Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, another James, Thaddeus, and Simon. Neither of the Jameses were James, Jesus' brother. I guess it was a popular name at the time. But history tells us that each of these men would spend the rest of their lives refusing, refusing to renounce their faith in Christ and preaching salvation through the resurrection. The lone exception was John. Uh, who probably would have been martyred, but I guess he was he was imprisoned for most of his adult life on the prison island of Patmos, and I guess they found a use for him. And then as soon as he became uh, as soon as he became old enough that they didn't have a use for him, they booted him off and exiled him to what is uh, currently Turkey. That's where he died. Um, but they were going to kill him, and then I guess whatever they used him for labor. So besides John, all the other ones were martyred. But he here's the thing about martyrdom. It's admirable, but it's not compelling enough evidence to validate belief uh, so much as it does authenticate believers, right? What makes the early Christian martyrs, especially the apostles, remarkable is that they knew whether or not what they were preaching or professing was true. So here's why that's significant. Let me explain. On the night Jesus was arrested, these men scattered, right? Even though that they had walked uh, with Jesus... For his entire ministry, right? They, they had seen his miracles. They heard his sermons. They claimed to believe him. Uh, even at their last meal together, they swore they would never abandon him. 
Even after he predicted it, nope, not going to do it, right? But in the moment that he was arrested, they were so afraid for their life that they were not willing to risk dying for Jesus. So they ran. And in the case of Peter, denied that he even knew the man. But in mere days, just a few weeks' time, every single one of these men believed something, and they believed it so unconditionally that they were prepared to give their life for it. It's interesting, according to historical records, um, if a Christian was being tortured at this time, they could end their suffering simply by renouncing their faith. All they had to do was say, I don't believe anymore. Okay, cool. Go home. Yeah, have fun. But instead, it seemed that most decided uh, to endure the suffering suffering and, and affirm Christ's resurrection into their own death. Now. If they were lying about that, why continue to perpetrate it considering their circumstances? They had already denied knowing Christ. It's not like they didn't know how. So why cling to such an unprofitable lie in the face of torture and death? It's because they knew the truth. It was a truth that turned them 180 degrees from trembling cowards afraid for their life to fearless defenders of the Christian faith. It was a truth that they were now willing to die for. They saw a risen Jesus and it changed their lives forever. Now, we may not have the benefit of physically seeing that. On this side of heaven, we may never be able to touch Jesus pierced hands or view the spear wound in his side like Thomas did. Okay. But we have the testimony of those that did. And if you look at all of the information objectively, and I encourage you to do so, the only logical conclusion is that Jesus lived. He died and he rose from the dead just like he promised he would. So in his book, Welcome to Adulting, Jonathan Pecluda, or JP, which is much easier to say, talks about how when his daughter was younger, he would take her to the grocery store with him, right? And when he'd go, they'd always use the cart with the little car on the front. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's like a plastic car. It has a little steering wheel that doesn't actually steer anything. Um, But when they would go, he would uh, would use this cart, and he, he... would have, they would have some fun, right? He would direct the car whichever way she was steering. Sometimes they'd end up in the wrong aisle, bump into the cereal shelf, you know, whatever. It was, uh, he says it was a lot of fun. But um, at some point in the trip, uh, inevitably, um, she would be turning the wheel one way to the right, and he would just direct the cart to the left. And he, and he says that his daughter would get very frustrated, right? She's gripping the wheel. As hard as she can, she's turning with every ounce of strength in her little body. Uh, but ultimately, he would effortlessly continue the other direction. Because, as he points out, uh, they didn't just come to the grocery store to play, right? They, they, the purpose of their trip was bigger than that. And in this case, it was because they needed food to eat, right? But he, he says this is a good illustration of how in life we worry and we become stressed about the issue of control. Right. We lose focus and we think that, God, I don't know, maybe it's, it'd be better if I'm calling the shots. J.P. finishes his story this way. He says, 
He says the problem comes. The problem comes when we either don't know who is control in control or we don't trust the one who is driving. So who is in control of your life? That's the question. That's a question that only you and I can answer for ourselves. If the thing that's been holding you back uh, is uncertainty, maybe it's time to let let that go. Maybe it's time to let someone else drive uh, who knows where they're going. Right? If it's confirmation you're looking for, you can find it in abundance. You're not going to find it on TikTok or Instagram. You kind of have to dig a little deeper. It's this thing called the Bible. It's really good. If it's refuge in life that you seek, I can tell you from experience, the things of this life, they won't give it to you. You don't inherit the kingdom without the king. It just doesn't work that way. And in the game of life, we have a king. It is a king that created us. It is a king that loves his creation without restraint. And it is a king that has kept every promise that he has ever made to us. Our king knows better than we know, knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows which direction is best. In Jesus, we have salvation. We have direction. We have peace. And most of all, we have hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you so much. Um, for everyone that uh, that showed up this morning to hear your word. God, we ask that you continue uh, walking with us, that you continue guiding us, that, 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 that you would bestow your wisdom on us so that as we go through life, that we are able to focus on you. And that we have the clarity of wisdom that you can provide. God, when you walk with us, you you give us refuge. And the craziness of this life, it doesn't stop. It's still going on around us. But when you're walking with us, it affects us differently. Or it doesn't affect us at all. God, the only way that we are able to do that is through you, through your love. Father God, we love you. Please forgive us where we failed you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for the Crosspoint Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Crosspoint Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.